Mark Zuckerberg told The New Yorker the news source he definitely follows is TechMeme. So listen to the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast, the podcast anyone who's anyone in Silicon Valley listens to every day. In just 15 to 20 minutes, you get a rundown of what happened in the world of tech with all the headlines, context, commentaries, and tweets from all the biggest players. New episodes every day at 5 p.m. Eastern. Search your favorite podcast app for Ride Home and subscribe to the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast. Tired of spending hundreds of dollars for prescription glasses? Zenni offers thousands of affordable eyewear styles, starting at just $6.95. No ridiculous markups, no hassles, just quality, affordable eyewear delivered right to you. Visit Zenni today at zenni.com slash CNN. Good evening. A lot happening tonight, including two big developments that may touch on the president, one involving his former campaign chairman, who's on trial on tax and bank fraud charges, but is also under pressure to cooperate with the Russia Special Counsel. The other involves the close friend of the president's longtime associate and one-time campaign advisor, Roger Stone, a woman who once made headlines for another political connected scandal. Kristen Davis is her name. She was formerly known as the Manhattan Madam. Today, we learned she has spoken with Team Mueller. CNN's uh, Bryn Gingrass joins us now with the latest on her and how she may factor into Robert Mueller's case. So we know she met with uh, Mueller's team. Do we have any idea what they asked her? Well, we don't right now, Anderson, uh, what was asked by Mueller's team to Davis. But we know that this woman, as you said, known as Manhattan Madam, voluntarily spoke with investigators. And what she knows and how she fits into this bigger picture isn't exactly clear. But sources tell CNN Mueller's team would like her to testify in front of a grand jury. So this really points to the fact that the special counsel seems to be focusing on Stone as they continue this overarching investigation to Russia's interference in the 2016 election. And Davis really has a very close relationship with Stone. They know each other for a decade. Stone is the godfather to Davis's two-year-old son. Stone was put Davis on his payroll. And conversely, when Davis made a New York gubernatorial run, Stone worked on her campaign. So perhaps she has information on his finances, his connections, his friendships, any other personal life matters. Uh, we should mention, Anderson, that Stone did release a statement saying this, quote, Kristen Davis is a longtime friend and associate of mine. I am the godfather to her two-year-old son. She knows nothing about Russian collusion, WikiLeaks collaboration, or any other impropriety related to the 2016 election, which I thought was the subject of this probe. I understand she appeared voluntarily. I'm highly confident she will testify truthfully if called upon to do so. Anderson? And I understand investigators seem to be interested in Stone's relationship uh, with, with her son. Yeah, sources tell CNN Mueller's team have asked at least two witnesses about the relationship between Davis's son, again, two years old, and Stone, probing about the possibility that it's Stone's child instead of godchild. Again, we're not sure where those questions lead, but it's clear here investigators are asking questions about his personal life as part of this bigger picture. And how does Stone fit into what we know about the, the Russian investigation so far? Yeah, this is a man who had close relationships with the president. Stone served as an advisor to the president while he never was officially part of the Trump campaign. He knew, you know, talked to Stone frequently, talked to him during that time. Uh, at one point, Stone admitted to even someone bragged about having connections to WikiLeaks. So that would obviously be of interest to investigators. But Stone hasn't been interviewed by Mueller's team as far as we know. So we have to make that point, Anderson. All right. Bryn uh, Gingrass, appreciate it. Now the president's former campaign chairman, his trial and what appear to be his growing legal troubles. Today, two accountants for, for uh, Paul Manafort took the stand and what they had to say about his taxes. Well, almost certainly leave a mark. CNN's Shimon Prokopes joins us now with the latest on that trial. So what, what else happened today, day four? 
Uh, so it was a big day, really, for the prosecution. They had their first person testifying, really with direct knowledge of Manafort's alleged scheme, obviously, to hide money in offshore accounts, to lie on his uh, taxes. Uh, this witness who testified, Cindy Laporte, she was one of the witnesses uh, that was given immunity. She's one of the five that was given immunity by the special counsel's office. And really, Anderson, it was a big day for prosecutors, a damaging testimony for Manafort. Uh, she testified that Manafort asked her to falsify documents and some of this activity while he was running the Trump campaign in 2016. In one case, she said that uh, money that Manafort claimed he had uh, in offshore accounts, uh, that it was a loan when, in fact, it was income that he had made, that by doing so, that reduced his taxes by $500,000. Um, there's emails of communications between her and Paul Manafort. Really, this is setting up a qu quite the number of witnesses that are going to be coming and really just all the evidence that prosecutors seem to have uh, against Paul Manafort. Did the accountant explain why she lied for Manafort initially? Yeah, she was regretful, Anderson. Certainly, she said that he was an important client uh, to her, uh, and she simply just did not want to fight him. She didn't stand up to him. Uh, but in the end, really, her only reason for not doing it was because she just felt that he was too important uh, of a client. Do we know when Gates is going to testify, Rick Gates? Yeah, so that's the, going to be a big day. Uh, we thought maybe they could start today. Uh, we now think it is likely, if there's any chance, that it could probably be Monday, uh, the earliest. It could be on Tuesday. They have to finish with this accountant uh, on Monday afternoon. She's going to be back in court on Monday, and he could, Gates, Rick Gates, go testify uh, after that, which would either be Monday or Tuesday. Anderson. All right, Shimon thanks. So between Manafort, the uh, former madam, and Roger Stone as well, there's Plenty to talk about, plenty to ask our best legal minds. Harvard Law School's Alan Dershowitz, author of The Case Against Impeaching Trump. Also with us is former Nixon White House counsel John Dean, author some years back of Blind Ambition. Professor Dershowitz, the fact that Mueller's team interviewed uh, the so-called Manhattan Madam, is it clear to you that Roger Stone continues to be a focus of this investigation, or at least of interest to this investigation? Is that what this is, can only be about? It seems very likely. Look, I think everybody hopes this doesn't become what happened in the Bill Clinton um, investigation where it started out as uh, Whitewater and ended up uh, with sordid um, sex. Um, this is a serious investigation. It should focus, of course, on Russia and Russia's involvement in the American election. And I hope that's where the focus remains. John, I mean, this isn't the first associate of Roger Stone that the special counsel has talked to, Sam Nunberg, Michael Caputo, um, were, were also questioned by, by the Mueller team uh, about him. It appears that they're trying to get a very tight timeline on his activities, uh, his contacts with Guzifer II, uh, to find out what his relationship may or may not have been. Uh, to either exonerate him or find uh, to press him to uh, admit whatever role he may or may not have had. So, yes, a lot of his associates, uh, much to his chagrin, are being questioned as well as his uh, relationship with other people. Professor Dershowitz, and we know the special counsel's team hasn't talked to Roger Stone yet. Is this typically the way it works, get all the information from people around someone and then call them in? Without a doubt. Uh, you always want to know the answers to the questions you're going to ask before you call somebody in. You don't want any surprises. It's rare that interviewing somebody like Stone would be for purposes of gathering information. It's for purposes of validating information you've already got from others and perhaps, and this is always speculative, trying to squeeze him by getting him to say something that's... Um, 
untrue and then use that uh, to try to squeeze him to provide information he might not want to provide. Look, that's the way prosecutors operate. Civil libertarians have been concerned about that for years, but it's fairly typical. And Professor Dershowitz, in the Manafort trial, you think that's really what's going on here, that, that this is an effort ultimately to squeeze Manafort? Well, that's not me. That's Judge Ellis, who's the judge presiding over this, who knows an enormous amount about this case. He said in open court that this is not about Manafort. It sounds like it's a fairly typical tax evasion case. Was it a loan? Was it income? Uh, but the goal is to get him convicted and to give him a choice between dying in prison or turning on his former associate. Yeah, that's what this is about. Of John, course. do you agree with that, that? That's what this is about, that they're really not interested in what are, you know, the charges of bank fraud or money laundering or violating lobby disclosure law and evading taxes. It's really about ultimately squeezing him? Well, it, it, that is a possibility. They certainly uh, appear to have stacked up some charges. The reason there are two cases, uh, there's one in D.C. and one in Virginia, is that uh, Manafort refused to waive the venue issue. Otherwise, these would have all been tried together. Uh, and mm -hmm. as you watch the trial and you watch the information, what's curious is that Manafort went to work for Trump when the guy apparently was flat broke and asked for no salary. So this suggests somebody, uh, as the commentators are saying, who might have been ripe for pickings by the Russians. Mm -hmm. And that may be the cliff this, mm -hmm. uh, this trial leaves us on. Professor Dershowitz, I mean, this is within the purview of Mueller's team. I mean, they're, they're directed, the special counsel is authorized to investigate, quote, any matters that arose or may arise directly from the investigation. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty broad, uh, broad yeah. mandate. Oh, this... I think that's right, and I think the judge wrote the right decision when he refused to dismiss it. But nonetheless, the judge did say that the purpose is obviously to try to get Manafort. Look, Manafort was smart not waiving venue because he's much better off with Judge Ellis and a Virginia jury than he would be with a judge who revoked his bail in Washington, D.C., and a D.C. jury, which is going to be largely Democrat. Uh, and so, uh, but it gives the prosecutions two shots, and it's risky on both sides. But in the end, they will probably get a conviction and probably try very hard to squeeze Manafort. And we can't know at this point whether Manafort will A, sing or compose, and B, whether he'd be pardoned. It was interesting, John, to hear all the details about how far Manafort went to attempt to hide a very significant amount of income and how many different ways he allegedly went about trying to do it. Yes, his, his, his accountants on the stand today were certainly uh, revealing his modus operandi and, and how little they actually knew about some of his affairs, uh, yet they were enough aware that the fact that his taxes were not accurate and were, they put that into evidence today. And this defense of blaming everything on Gates uh, is getting tougher and tougher as they, re, as they report that Manafort himself was signing many of these documents. Professor Dershowitz, about Gates, I mean, he's expected to testify Monday. How important do you think his testimony is going to be in the case? Because certainly the defense has been trying to paint him as the bad guy from the start. Well, a little less important than I previously thought, because this accountant, who doesn't seem to have an axe to grind, did testify pretty persuasively. Now, of course, she, she could conceivably have been prosecuted because she did uh, sign the tax returns, but that's rarely done. So Gates will still be important. He will be easy pickings for a good cross-examiner because he's gotten the deal and he can be shown to have an interest in uh, being 
stating testimony that would be acceptable to the prosecution. But if he has corroborated uh, testimony and if he's corroborated by uh, the accountant, then his testimony can be persuasive to a jury. John, is it possible to make a plea deal once a trial starts? Absolutely. Uh, as the professor, I'm sure, could instruct us, and maybe in his own experience, uh, I understand that you can uh, take a plea up to the time the jury is even out uh, deliberating. Is that right, Professor? Yes. <clears throat> and that has happened. There's a famous case where Rudy Giuliani was a young uh, assistant district attorney and a congressman was on trial, and the plea was obtained after Giuliani devastated him on cross-examination. He then submitted a plea. There's another famous case where while the jury was out, they accepted a plea, and then the jury came back and acquitted. Nonetheless, the guilty plea was accepted, wow. so you can do it any time. Professor, thank you. John Dean as well. Stick around. Uh, we're going to talk to you in the next hour of, of 360. There's a lot more ahead tonight, though, in this hour, including the question of why the president always seems to be at odds with the rest of his administration on Russia's threat to U.S. elections. Keep in mind, I'll ask two top officials in other administrations if they've ever seen anything like this before. And later, a judge gives the administration a tongue lashing on all those kids who still have not been reunited with their families. See how uh, he's keeping them honest tonight on 360. Tired of spending hundreds of dollars for prescription glasses? Our friends at Zenni Optical offer a huge variety of high-quality, stylish frames and state-of-the-art optics starting at just $6.95. You can get multiple frames with this great pricing for less than one pair elsewhere. Start building your eyewear wardrobe from the comfort of your own home at Zenni.com. With the latest trends in eyewear, available in hundreds of frame styles and materials, there isn't a better way to change it up for every season. Plus, Zenni offers prescription sunglasses at incredible prices. Visit Zenni today at Zenni.com slash CNN. That's Z-E-N-N-I dot com slash CNN. The Kremlin today lashed out at the Russian investigation, a foreign ministry spokeswoman referring to it as, and I'm quoting here, the two-year hysteria around the alleged Russian interference in U.S. elections, which did not happen. She says the focus on it undermines relations between the two countries, which sounds almost exactly like what President Trump said last night. Speaking at a rally in eastern Pennsylvania, the president had warm words about his summit with Vladimir Putin, harsh words about the Russia probe. We got along really well. By the way, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. That's a really good thing. Now, we're being hindered by the Russian hoax. It's a hoax. I'll tell you what. Russia's very unhappy that Trump won, that I can tell you. But I got along great with Putin. We're being hindered by the Russian hoax, he said. Now, the president sometimes clarifies what he means by that, saying any notion of collusion is a hoax, but he often doesn't make that distinction and seems to imply the entire Mueller probe into the election attack is a hoax or the attack itself is one. As for his claim, Russia's unhappy, he won there really isn't much evidence of that. If any, Putin himself said in Helsinki on camera in a press conference next to Trump that he wanted Trump to win. And the president has rarely, if ever, attacked Putin the way he has so many other world leaders, even allies of the U.S. And that's, of course, his privilege. The president determines the foreign policy course he wants to set for the country. That's not the issue. Keeping him honest, this is. The, the president's position on Russia often undercuts his administration's position and the tough statements his own advisors make, which raises the obvious question, is the president trying to have it both ways, or is it now explicit White House policy to speak out of both sides of its mouth on a vital national security issue? Regardless of the motivation, this is something that's been happening over and over again, the president undercutting his own national security team after the fact or undermining their message beforehand. Again, here's what the president said last night. Now, we're being hindered 
by the Russian hoax. It's a hoax, okay? All right, he says it's a hoax. Here's what his top national security and counterintelligence official said on his orders at the White House just a few hours before he said that. Our democracy itself is in the crosshairs. What we see is the Russians are looking for every opportunity, regardless of party, regardless of, of uh, uh, whether or not it applies to the election, uh, to continue their pervasive efforts to undermine our fun- fundamental values. I fully share the intelligence community and the ODNI's assessments, past efforts, uh, past efforts and those uh, today to interfere with our election and of the current threat. They stepped up their game big time in 2016. This is a threat we need to take extremely seriously and to tackle and respond to with fierce determination and focus. Have you heard the president say anything like that again? These are the president's own top advisors and cabinet members sent out with his blessing to push a message that he himself doesn't seem to fully accept. Here's the uh, secretary of Homeland Security, Kirsten Nielsen, again on Tuesday. Two years ago, as we all know, a foreign power launched a brazen, multifaceted influence campaign to undermine public faith in our democratic process and to distort our presidential election. Let me be clear. Our intelligence community has it right. It was the Russians. We know that. They know that. It was directed from the highest levels. And we cannot and will not allow that to happen again. Again, that was Tuesday. A day later, the president tweeted, not backing Nielsen up, but instead he chose to tweet about the one aspect of the Russia probe that seems to truly concern him. And I quote, Russian collusion with the Trump campaign, one of the most successful in history, is a total hoax. The Democrats paid for the phony and discredited dossier, which was, along with Comey, McCabe, uh, Strzok, and his lover, the lovely Lisa Page, used to begin the witch hunt. Disgraceful. He didn't condemn Russian interference in American elections, and he certainly didn't use the opportunity to back up his own Secretary of Homeland Security. Not then, and not a couple weeks before. Here's FBI Director Christopher Wray on July 18th, two days after the president had such generous words for Putin in Helsinki, and for Putin's denial he inferred in the 2016 election. The intelligence community's assessment has not changed. My view has not changed, uh, which is that Russia attempted to interfere with the last election, uh, and that it continues to engage in malign influence operations to this day. Well, that's pretty clear, but even as the networks were broadcasting that, they were also still broadcasting this from the president just a day before. I accept our intelligence community's conclusion that Russia's meddling in the 2016 election took place. Could be other people also. Uh, There's a lot of people out there. Two contradictory messages on Russia a day apart at the very moment the entire world was asking what the message really was, and two contradictory messages in the very same presidential statement. One written by the president's staff that he read, and then barely a beat later, the president's own ad-lib thoughts on the matter, that it could be other people. There's a lot of people out there. As we said, this happens again and again. DNI Coates in February. Take a look. We need to inform the American public that this is real, that this is going to be happen, and, then, and the resilience needed for us to stand up and say we're not going to allow some Russian to tell us how to vote, how we ought to run our country. Uh, and I think there needs to be a national cry for that. Well, those remarks came just a few days after the president tweeted out something he saw on Fox News discrediting the Russia probe, blaming the Justice Department, the FBI, and the State Department for victimizing him during the 2016 campaign. Again, time and time again. One White House, two messages, 
And time after time, the president prefers the one that lets Russia off the hook. It raises a host of questions, some of which we'll put to our guests, former Clinton White House Chief of Staff and Obama CIA Director Leon Panetta, and Axe Files host David Axelrod, former senior advisor to President Obama. Secretary Panetta, it's pretty remarkable. The president at times seems to be more in line with what the Russian foreign ministry is saying than with what his own intelligence and security chiefs are, are saying. Anderson, uh, I have never in my lifetime uh, seen an administration uh, that is presenting such a, a confused message uh, when it comes to a national security threat. Uh, and the fact is that it's sending a very mixed message to both our enemies and our allies uh, that the United States does not have a, a clear policy when it comes to Russia. Do you know why they're sending such a mixed message? Well, this has gone on too long uh, to uh, be just the consequence of incompetence. Uh, I think this is deliberate. Uh, certainly it's deliberate on the part of the president. Uh, whether it's deliberate on the part of uh, his uh, cabinet members, uh, I don't think that's the case. But it, it clearly is deliberate that he's trying to send two messages here. Uh, one is a message to the Russians and to his base. Uh, and the message to the Russians is uh, keep doing what you're doing. And the message to his base is uh, regardless of the facts, uh, please, uh, please stick with me and listen to me. Uh, the other message uh, is one to the majority of the American people, which is that U.S. policy remains the same, that it remains firm uh, with regards to Russia, and that we're taking steps to try to protect uh, our country. Uh, those are the two messages that are going out, but when you put them together, it creates tremendous confusion about just exactly what the United States of America really stands for. David, obviously you worked in the Obama White House, you've watched many others. Have you ever seen a president and members of the administration on such different pages when it comes to a national security threat? Unthinkable. Unthinkable. Uh, I agree with Leon. I, I've never seen this, whether in my years in the White House or my years uh, of being involved in politics or my years as a journalist. This is totally unprecedented. You know, there was a time when we had this bipolar world, the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Now the world looks at us and they see a bipolar administration. And it's very hard to determine uh, uh, what, the, what the truth is here. Uh, but uh, we should point out, I, like, I want to give credit to uh, the, the members of the national security team because I think that they did the right thing by standing up. I, I think Dan Coates and others have, have, have and uh, uh, Bob Ray and uh, uh, Chris Ray, I should say, and, and uh, have been very consistent about the nature of this threat. Uh, but the president of the United States has the biggest megaphone. It was the president of the United States who sat alone for two hours with Vladimir Putin. It was the president of the United States who stood on a platform with Vladimir Putin and, uh, and, and essentially undercut his national security team and his intel team uh, and gave credence to Putin's lies. Uh, so the world sees that first, and it makes uh, them wonder. And, and I think that uh, it gives uh, Putin the idea that the back door is open. Come on in. Secretary Panetta, I mean, uh, uh, David just mentioned uh, Dan Coats. Last night, the president said he had a great meeting with Putin. I mean, the director of national intelligence, Dan Coats, said yesterday that he's, quote, not in a position to either understand fully or talk about what happened in Helsinki. Now, either he knows and can't talk about it, but the idea that 
to even say that he's not in a position to understand what actually occurred behind closed doors is pretty stunning. Well, you've got the uh, director of national intelligence who obviously has no idea about what the president said to Putin in that room. Uh, and I suspect that there isn't anybody uh, in the administration, in the national security team, that really knows exactly what was said in that room. Right, because when John uh, Bolton, he, 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 refer, he referred to John Bolton right next, and then Bolton quoted Vladimir Putin's statement, not something that the president himself had told him. Yeah, no, I, I, I think, uh, you know, the, the Russians have uh, said things about what was, what was agreed to in that room. Uh, but we have heard absolutely nothing from the president of the United States about the specifics of what was discussed uh, or what was agreed to. Uh, and so the result is that uh, uh, there is a tremendous amount of suspicion here about just exactly uh, what, what is it that uh, the president and Putin really talked about that impacts on uh, United States foreign policy. Uh, this is this is unheard of. We, you know, I've never I've never seen a situation like this. But you know, that's what we're getting with the Trump administration. What really bothers me is that this is an an enemy who's trying to undermine uh, our democracy. That's what the Russians have tried to do uh, since uh, you know since recent history is basically undermine our democracy. That's what they're engaged in, and right now. They are successful at doing that in the way they continue to try to interfere with our election. Uh, that means that a national security threat facing this country has a very confused response in terms of the administration. David, I mean, is it simply the president can't separate anything having to do with Russian interference from the legitimacy of his electoral win? I mean, is that what his silence on the issue is about here? Well, that's what you keep hearing from his people that he, uh, you know, privately you read this, you hear this. He just doesn't want his win, uh, you know, denigrated or downgraded or, or called into question. Uh, but that doesn't speak to, uh, even if that were the case, it doesn't speak to where we are now. I mean, there's a threat now. And one of the reasons there's the confusion that Leon speaks about uh, is that the president is parroting Putin's line. And when the president calls uh, the Russian investigation a hoax, uh, that is exactly what uh, Moscow said today. This is the Kremlin line today. Uh, they were bitterly uh, denouncing the investigation and said there was no truth to it. So, you know, the president keeps reinforcing the Kremlin's line. And uh, that is a source of great concern as my, uh, and confusion for anyone who's trying to read what's actually going on here in our own government. Yeah, David Axelrod, Secretary Leon Panetta, thank you very much. We have a lot more straight ahead, including the breaking news of a federal judge's rebuke of Trump administration attorneys who'd wanted a civil liberties group, the ACLU, to take charge of finding hundreds of immigrant parents deported without their kids. And later word that the TSA is discussing even more cost-saving measures at the nation's airports besides the ones CNN already reported earlier this week. The question, of course, is could the changes compromise security? Remember, to create an ad like this one, Visit purewinning.com slash CNN. There's breaking news tonight on the family separation front. A federal judge in San Diego has delivered a stinging rebuke to the Trump administration attorneys who'd proposed that a private civil rights group, the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, be in charge of locating hundreds of deported parents who've been separated from their children 
in the wake of the government's family separation policies. Now, the, the judge is the same one who's been overseeing the return of those kids over the past several weeks. He called the administration's proposal to let the ACLU and other groups locate the parents, quote, unacceptable. He also added, the reality is that for every parent who's not located, there'll be a permanent orphan child, and that is 100% the responsibility of the administration. Joining me now to discuss is Oregon Democratic Senator Jeff uh, Merkley, who's visited some of those detention centers where parents and kids have been uh, kept. Senator Merkley, thanks for being with us. Do you have any understanding as to why the government thought it was the ACLU's responsibility to relocate, to, to, to find these parents, to essentially, you know, right these wrongs in the first place? It wasn't the ACLU that separated the kids from their parents. Hmm. No, no, absolutely not, Anderson. Uh, the situation is that the government has so botched the connection between the parents and the children that they'd like to shed that responsibility and put it off onto someone else. Uh, when they sent the parents back without their children, and, and many of the children of the 700s who are still not reconnected to their parents, some 500 or so, their parents have been deported. They didn't track carefully where the parents would be. Uh, we don't know if they have more information than they've revealed in terms of uh, phone numbers or email addresses, but in terms of street addresses, many of their files just say things like sin calle, which means without a street, or maybe it lists a city and no other details. And, and they are finding it very difficult to find the parents since they didn't track the information and they'd, they'd like to, to say, well, uh, we mess it up, but let's make sure someone else has to clean this up. Yeah, I mean, it's been going on for weeks now. The government still doesn't know how they're going to reunite these families um, because even when, when people are deported, uh, they're not necessarily sent back to where they came from. They could be sent to another town. In some cases, I, I'm told, even another country. Yes, and so that adds to the, the confusion. And in this situation where the government, our government, knew that their kids were still in the United States, or at least should have known if they had tracked it carefully, uh, they made no effort to say, well, we, we need to make sure that we know how to find these parents because we still have a, a, a child, a family member, who's in the care of the U.S. government. And they, they simply, uh, apparently, uh, didn't do so with any sort of, of diligence. There is, throughout this entire process, from the time that the, the Trump team decided to start ripping children out of their parents' arm, there's been a thorough lack of preparation, planning, a, a certain callousness about the impact of this treatment on the kids. So, I mean, we're talking about a policy that deliberately inflicted trauma and then follow-up that was so incompetent as to further aggravate the situation. I mean, the ACLU say they're, they're willing to work with the government, but according to them, they said that the government's contact information is so unsatisfactory um, that e even though it appears HHS has phone numbers uh, for many of the parents, they, they really just don't know how to locate them. Is, do, I mean, is the government acting in good faith here? I, I don't, I, I'm sure there are some individuals in this process who are doing everything they can to assist these children. But in terms of the decision makers who designed the program, it was done in a horrific, incompetent, callous fashion. And now everybody is, is paying the price. It, it keeps, and it does, I mean, there's no end in sight right now and really no solution in sight. You have the judge saying it's unacceptable and that the responsibility is 100% of the government. Are there repercussions here, or is that just part of the issue here, that there are no repercussions for this? 
Well, certainly at this moment, we're dependent upon the judge to keep the heat on. Uh, the judge is demanding that the, the government assign a specific team that, that carries a responsibility. There really should be an action team now for every one of those children, a pair of, of, uh, of employees of the federal government who have responsibility for a certain child, tracking their parents, using every possible resource, using our, our FBI resources, using our international contacts, using our State Department, uh, advertising. I mean, they need to do everything possible. And this is just a message that the administration has never internalized. It's, they've been doing the minimum time and time again, missing the deadlines, not mobilizing the resources, kind of begrudgingly saying, well, we really wanted to separate these kids from these parents. We're being told we have to reunite them. We're just not going to make that much of an effort. It, it is amazing when you think about, you know, you had Secretary Kelly, who at the time before he was chief of staff was, was Secretary of Homeland Security, telling Wolf Blitzer, you know, more than a year ago, I think it was, that they were considering separating the children as a policy and that it would be a deterrent um, or, or, or potentially a deterrent. And that even in all that time, it wasn't planned out enough or that HHS just isn't up to the task, even though... You know, you had claims from officials saying, oh, it would just take a couple of keystrokes on a computer to, to figure out exactly where the kids are and where the parents are. Well, and realize that the entire premise of this program is completely flawed. The administration for publicity said this is catch and release, that people don't show up to their hearings. But the administration shut down the family case management program. And the inspector general's report says 100 percent of the families in the family case management program showed up for their hearings. So the administration basically lied to the American public, said people aren't showing up for their hearings, so we have to do something dramatically different, that is to treat people as criminals. And then they did share, finally, after a year after launching the pilot project, they shared the real intention, which was to deter people from seeking asylum in the United States of America. And so we, we can't forget kind of the dark and evil place that this came from, which was a deliberate decision by Kelly, uh, by Steve Miller, by the president, by Jeff Sessions to inflict harm on children in order to send a political message. Mm -hmm. Senator Merkley, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Earlier this week, CNN's uh, Renee Marsh reported that the TSA is discussing a proposal to eliminate screenings at more than 150 small to medium airports across the country. She's now learning that that's just one of several cost-saving measures up for debate. Here's her report. A senior TSA employee tells CNN the agency is looking at cuts that could save more than $300 million in 2020. Among those cuts, reducing the number of full-time air marshals, reducing the workforce at TSA headquarters, and a 50% cut in reimbursements to state and local law enforcement agencies for use of their canine unit. This is an agency under pressure to reduce costs, does not have an animating theme for what, from where they're going to do it, uh, and is uh, potentially exposing Americans and traveling Americans to risks that they do not need to be exposed to. Ladies and gentlemen, we are the police remain calm. Air marshals are the last line of defense. 
armed agents aboard planes to prevent hijackings. Critics question its effectiveness, but the TSA has defended the program as a deterrent. TSA did not respond to a request for comment. Earlier this week, CNN revealed the most controversial cut under consideration, eliminating screening at more than 150 small and some medium-sized airports, an idea that has already been widely panned by lawmakers, security experts, and airports. Since I as the airport don't want to take on that, uh, either the liability nor the cost, uh, and I'm quite certain the airlines don't want to take that on. So if TSA backs out, there's a void, and I don't know who would fill it. And Renee joins me now. Is there any indication why these areas are the areas that TSA is discussing cutting? Well, Anderson, we do know that, you know, agencies discuss where they trim all the time. But honestly, the big question tonight uh, that Congress and likely the American public is asking is, what can explain why TSA is focused on these specific programs and whether these cuts are being considered because uh, the threat and risk to aviation has changed or whether it's just an indication that the agency is under extreme pressure to cut costs. Uh, it really is unclear why they have highlighted these specific programs because we've reached out on multiple occasions and the agency has not responded. Right. Anderson. Renee Marsh, thanks for the reporting. His lawyers have advised against it. President Trump reportedly still wants to sit down with Robert Mueller and that decision could be coming soon. Wouldn't be the first time he's gone under oath. We'll hear from two lawyers who know exactly what it's like to question Donald Trump next. I'm Andy Katz from March Madness 365, and on this edition of our show, I'll be joined by Syracuse's Tyus Battle. I've been just trying to improve all facets of my game, just being able to be more offensive, throwing the ball different ways, shooting the ball, I think that's improved. And uh, just my playmaking ability as well. Subscribe to March Madness 365 now at Apple Podcasts and Spotify. He keeps claiming he wants to. Soon we may know whether President Trump will sit down with Robert Mueller. A decision could come within a week or so. That's what his attorney, Rudy Giuliani, told Politico. The question is, what would it be like to depose Donald Trump? Randy Kay spoke to a lawyer who knows firsthand. He was like a pot that he started off okay, like simmer. And then slowly the pot was boiling and boiling and boiling. And then we got towards uh, the tail end of the deposition. And that's when the pot boiled over. Attorney Glenn Zeitz is talking about Donald Trump. He deposed him long before he was president in a case involving eminent domain back in the 1990s. Trump was claiming eminent domain to take possession of an elderly widow's home in Atlantic City so he could use it as a parking lot for his casino's limousines. Overall, how would you describe him during the deposition? Self-deprecating is not Donald. Donald was the Donald that you see now. You know, he walks in, he wants to take over, he wants to make the deposition his deposition, even though it's mine. Uh, He tries to control the questioning. Zeitz says Trump tried to come off confident, but that his emotions got the best of him. That's when the insults started flying. Now he's calling me a third-rate lawyer. I, I thought it was pretty good that he, he was saying that because it meant that finally, after almost two hours, I had gotten to him. How would you describe his technique? We call it a non-responsive answer. He will add things on. He'll make self-serving statements. He'll sh- shuck and jive. If I asked Donald in that a question, I said, Donald, what time is it? He'd probably tell me how to build a clock. He was grossly unprepared, or he was just uh, 
deliberately being evasive. What he was doing, at least in the deposition, was saying that he delegates everything to everybody else. In fact, Trump responded with, I don't know, more than a dozen times during the deposition, often saying, ask my representatives, and it's called delegation. I have some very good people. The problem is trying to figure out, are the answers a deliberate lie, or are they a product of someone who is indifferent to the facts or indifferent to what he signed, and therefore there was no intent. What surprised this lawyer most, though, was Trump's bizarre request to go off the record, moments before he fired his own lawyer. In his 46 years practicing law, Zeitz has never seen anyone do that. We go off the record, and then he wants to talk to me while his poor lawyer's sitting there like a potted plant. Zeitz says Trump wanted to make a deal and settle the case, but Zeitz refused. And in the end, Trump lost. He's like, a, you know, a animal in the woods. He's been through plenty of depositions. If you approach him the normal way, he's going to pick up the scent. He's going to understand that he's got to be careful about what he says because he's no dummy. Randy Kay, CNN, Palm Beach, Florida. Well, neither the White House or the Trump Organization have given us a comment on that story. With us now, another attorney who wants to pose the president, Jason Forge, who was one of the lead attorneys for the plaintiffs in the Trump University case. Uh, thanks so much for, for being with us, Jason. How would you describe the president during a deposition? He's certainly not a novice at them. He's, he's given them really his whole adult life. Anderson, I'd say he's fully engaged, uh, completely uninhibited and, frankly, pretty fearless. Is that, are those good qualities to have in a deposition? Well, for me, as an adversary, those were wonderful qualities. I, mean, I found it uh, very easy to get the types of answers that we were hoping to get from his deposition, and, and then some. If I was his attorney, it would be a nightmare. It, it, doesn't, it didn't seem to you that, I mean, did it seem to you he'd been coached or that he responds to coaching? Because, I mean, that, that's certainly the impression of him is that, you know, he's not really going to be responding to a lot of coaching uh, from his own attorneys in advance, he's going to say what he wants to say. No, you know, he had a great lawyer. Dan Petricelli represented him, and he's done a number of high-profile cases. But I am very confident that Mr. Trump is uncoachable. And there's no way that Dan prepared Mr. Trump to give some of the answers that he gave. But the fact of the matter is, He's in charge, whether it's in a deposition or in any other context. And no matter how high-ranking the lawyer is, no one's going to tell him how to answer a question. We've certainly seen this in interviews, uh, and I've heard you say that he, he really responds to flattery. He definitely responds to flattery. On the other hand, you know, he does, he will push you, and if you cower, he's not going to respect you. So you have to push back, but at the same time, a, a compliment to him goes a long way. It actually has an impact on him. It really does. I mean, it's a, there's a clear difference in his responses, just in his demeanor. It, once you start complimenting him, his guard goes down and he is much more cooperative. The, the reporting that he's been pushing for a sit-down interview with Mueller, do you think people underestimate how persuasive he can be un under oath? Because, I mean, I've always found he can be charming and, you know, a, a pleasure to talk to, which people who don't even like him might be surprised about if they actually met him. Well, you're exactly right. In fact, I experienced two different versions of him. I deposed him once in December, 
And it was the first time we had met, and I think he was going through his normal routine of seeing how far he could push me. I then deposed him again in January, and in the meantime, he had realized, okay, I'm not going to bully this guy. Now I'm going to charm him. And he is extremely charming. You're, you're 100% right. He can be very charming. As far as being persuasive, I, I think he's a very formidable witness for a jury. I don't think he's going to persuade these prosecutors, but as far as presentation in front of a jury, he would be a very formidable witness. What do you think makes him formidable for, for a jury? I mean, I assume the same thing that makes him formidable for, for voters. I mean, the, the people, what, what's your opinion on well, number one is, like you said, he is very polarizing. So th- there are some people who I-, I literally would play the same clip of a deposition for one group of folks who are you know, politically inclined to agree with him and another group of folks who are disinclined to agree with him. And they would see the same exact testimony and come away with completely different reactions. But it's almost like a Stockholm sy- syndrome with him. He... You know, he can be a bully, but then when he goes from bullying you to complimenting you, it, the, the contrast is so stark, it, does, it is charming. He, he does that with reporters. I mean, if people watch during interviews, he'll often say to a reporter, like, oh, your ratings are great, or, you know, I've been watching what you're doing, things like that, um, which I assume is part of, I mean, I, he does watch a lot of TV and follows ratings and things like that, but it's also part of his charm offensive. It is. It, it, it drives me bananas to see this time and again that, you know, if people don't at least, you know, kiss the ring a little bit, I think that they don't get as much, uh, nearly as much information from him. And, but on the other hand, if he does turn on the charm, it's obviously important to keep in mind whatever objective you have, whether it's in an interview or a deposition. It's easy to become you know, swept away when he starts turning on the charm because it's such a stark contrast to the way he can be otherwise. Especially if you have a limited amount of time with him, uh, that would be a, a real concern, obviously a real danger for, for the Mueller prosecutors. Uh, Jason Forge, fascinating to talk to you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. A reminder, don't miss our daily interactive newscast on Facebook. It's a lot of fun. It's called Full Circle. You can see it weeknights at 625 Eastern at facebook.com slash Anderson Cooper Full Circle. It's a lot of stories you actually, we don't end up getting to, uh, to get to on uh, this broadcast. A lot of more variety. It's a lot of fun. Up next, there's breaking news, new reporting on what appears to be a connection between an alleged Russian spy and a former Trump campaign advisor. We'll be joined by the correspondent who has that story. Also, Robert Mueller's team interviews the woman once known as the Manhattan Madam. She has ties to uh, longtime Trump ally Roger Stone. The question is, is Mueller trying to build a case against him? And is that why he wants to talk to her? Details ahead. Are you ready to learn how to build a better consulting or professional services company? Then download the Liston.io show for the best sales and marketing advice so you can deliver your services to the people who need you the most. On the show, I'll be interviewing the smartest people in the industry to share what they know about building a better consulting business. I'll also give you episodes where I tell you specifically how to sell your services with confidence and how to transform into an influential leader in your industry. Your happy clients probably want to help you. It's too hard for them right now. You're asking them to do too much of the selling that you should be doing. Yeah, it's going to move. It's going to change. It's going to disrupt you at some point in time. Your most loyal clients are your most profitable. 
Ready to learn how other people are building the consulting company you've always wanted? Download the Liston.io show, spelled L-I-S-T-O-N dot I-O, wherever you get your podcasts. Before you go, we wanted to let you know that we just launched the ability for anyone to advertise on CNN Podcasts. You're just a few clicks away from reaching millions of people in a way that you never have before. Advertise for a business event or kick off an awareness campaign for your brand. Start today at purewinning.com slash CNN. Integrating podcasts into your marketing mix has never been easier. Go to purewinning.com slash CNN to get started.